Welcome back to Leads to Scale, a podcast from Social Media Week. I am your host, Toby Daniels. On this week's episode, we have Cindy Gallup, founder and CEO of Make Love Not Porn, the world's first user-generated, human-curated social sex video sharing platform. As I mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, Cindy is a very dear friend, a collaborator, an industry mentor to me and many others she inspires on a daily basis. As a brand and business innovator and consultant with over 30 years of experience in the advertising industry, Cindy is also someone who has earned the right to speak her mind. And when she does, people listen. During our conversation, we discussed her journey that started with her career in advertising at BBH through to the launch and building of Make Love Not Porn. We also discussed the Me Too movement and how she sees it impacting the ad industry in positive ways and how she plans to tackle another one of her favorite isms, ageism, during her upcoming session at Social Media Week New York in April. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Leads to Scale on your favorite podcasting app, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, on the podcast today, we have one of my favorite people on the planet, Cindy Gallup, founder and CEO of Make Love Not Porn. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining us, Cindy. It's a pleasure to be here, Toby. All right. So we've known each other for... Uh, oh my I God, a frighteningly long time. Frighteningly long time. <laughs> the best part of a decade, I believe. And we've mm. been lucky enough to have you keynote at Social Media Week on a number of occasions. Um, however, when I was sort of thinking about like how best to introduce you to our listeners, I sort of became all sort of like nervous and concerned that I wouldn't do a particularly good job or... I wouldn't do your work and all of your incredible accomplishments the uh, service that they, of course, deserve. So what I thought would be a good place to start would be instead of like a long and and potentially uh, awkward read through of your bio, I thought it'd be better to sort of take our listeners on a little bit of a journey, starting, of course, with your career in advertising. And then we'll spend some time talking about your subsequent work as a consultant, as a professional speaker, through to the launch of and the building of uh, Make Love Not Porn, which is the uh, the platform company that you are now operating. And then towards the end of the conversation, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the Me Too movement and also the session that you are going to be speaking on at Social Media Week coming up in April. Sound good? Sounds fantastic. Awesome. All right, listeners. Hold on to your underpants. This is going to be a fun ride. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning of your story, at least your professional story, I should say. So you started out in the um, started started your career in the in the advertising business. Um, And what I'm particularly interested in, I I want to hear the story, the origin story of of Cindy Gallup, the professional working in advertising, but particularly like tell that story through the lens of a young professional woman working in an industry, a largely all-male-dominated industry? Well, I mean, to be perfectly honest, um, Toby, I I do get asked about that regularly these days. And the answer is that, you know, I never thought about it like that. When I was a, you know, junior account exec coming up through the ranks in London in the late late 80s, because, um, you know, um, the point I make is a fish does not know what water is. And when you are surrounded by sexism, 
that's just the way it is. You know, so I never particularly noticed the male domination. I, I mean, you know, obviously there were many manifestations and, you know, so one of the reasons that I was hired into the ad agency Gold Greenies Trot, GGT, back in 1987, was because GGT was famously all male, mm-hmm. so much so that they took a look at themselves in 1987 and went, oh my God, better hire some women. And then they hired like a batch of three female account managers, one of whom was me, right. you know. Um, but 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 that really was just the way it was. But what, hang on a second, why, mm. why do you think they even like you know came to that realization mm. in the first place? Um, I, I think because they were so extraordinarily all male that, that it was born in um, even upon them. Right. That actually, given obviously by the way that in the advertising industry the primary consumer of most brands and products is female, mm-hmm. that it would be a jolly good idea if you were working on you know um, you know brands that you were selling to women as well as men to maybe have mm-hmm. some women mm-hmm. you know in the agency working on those businesses Um, you know especially because I mean for example you know one of their accounts was Cadbury's and and primary chocolate eaters are female you Mm -hmm. know I mean stuff like that basically right okay so it it wasn't necessarily something that you were like completely conscious of at the time but you know you rose through the ranks of the industry you know relatively quickly you became um, a very senior member of of the industry so talk us through that journey Um, and, and we don't always have to just talk through the lens of what it's like to be a woman sort of navigating the kind of the all male dominated halls of the advertising industry but I, I would love to kind of share a little bit about you know your, your story how you rose through the ranks and and mm. you know where you got to ultimately and then and then I guess after that like what prompted you to want to kind of leave what was obviously a very senior position at BBH. Sure so, so, so what I think is the interesting thing about what you just asked me Toby is that um, I spent the majority of my advertising career at um, Bartle Bogle Hegarty BBH mm-hmm. Um, I spent 16 years working for them. I worked for them in London, Singapore, and I moved here to New York over 20 years ago to start up the New York office for them. And the reason my career progressed well at BBH was because I was fortunate enough to work for um, a group of amazing um, men in advertising. So virtually all of my bosses in advertising, unfortunately, have been male because that was the way the industry was when I was coming up through the ranks. But I was lucky enough to work for men who absolutely saw my potential, believed in it, and wanted to champion me, wanted me to succeed. And that is not the case for so many women. And so I do talk about the fact that I feel enormously lucky. I mean, I feel enormously lucky that I did not run into the kind of serious sexual harassment so many of my peers did, which could have derailed my career. I feel lucky that I worked for men who wanted me to succeed. And, you know, that showed me what is possible when that is the case. And that, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, I do a lot of work to try and redesign a better industry for all of us. So um, that, that really contributed enormously to my, my personal career success. Why is that? Why, at which point did you decide or did you make a conscious decision to, to want to make that type of contribution? Because, of course, you know, I, I, you know, we've only known each other for 10 years, but during that time you've been a huge kind of like source of inspiration for me me in terms of helping me think about my own sort of personal and professional contribution to this industry, how I kind of like, you know, think about sort of addressing issues around um, equity and around gender balance and things like that. But, you know, I, you know, I, I, I'm drawing inspiration from people like you who are so vocal and so active in that particular space. But where did you draw your inspiration from? And, and, and when did you first decide that you wanted to kind of, you know, make this type of contribution? Well, um, 
To be honest, um, it was when I left the industry and had the chance to apply much more objectivity to it. Mm. So I basically, um, I turned 45 in 2005. I had my very own personal midlife crisis Mm -hmm. in the sense that I'd always thought of 45 as kind of a midlife point. You know, obviously, by the way, in the happy assumption, one lives to be 90, fingers right. crossed. Yeah. But in the couple of years running up to my 45th birthday, I'd always thought, you know, on your 45th birthday is the moment when you should pause, take stock, reflect and review. Where have I been? Where am I going? Mm-hmm. So on February 1, 2005, I duly did that. And that was the point, therefore, which I went, oh, my God, I've just worked 16 years for the same advertising agency. Wonderful agency. I cannot say enough nice things about BBH. I love them to death. They've done amazing things for me. But that was the point at which I went, oh, my God, maybe it's time to do something different. And then the problem was I hadn't the faintest idea what. So vast amount of thought and angsting ensued. And eventually I went, if I want to review every possible option open to me for what is effectively the second half of my life, Mm -hmm. maybe the best thing to do is to put myself on the market very publicly and go, okay, guys, here I am, what do you got? Mm -hmm. You know, let's see what comes. So I took this massive leap into the unknown. Um, I resigned as chairman of BBH New York back in the summer of 2005 without a job to go to. Mm -hmm. And it was the best bloody thing I ever did in my life. I want to know, okay, so I want to spend a little bit of time Mm, talking about kind of like the, the period of time where you had decided to leave, but you didn't necessarily know what you wanted to do next you put yourself out there what, what you know to talk us through that period of time that that particular experience and and you know was it an epiphany or or did you have to go Ooh. through a kind of an exhaustive process of like eliminating all of the other various different options before you you came to that conclusion sure. so so i i recommend to anybody who is at the same juncture that they consider doing the same thing because it is really hard to find out what you want to do next when you are working 24-7 mm-hmm. in, in your current role. Yeah. And the really interesting thing about, you know, taking this big leap into the unknown and putting myself out there as publicly available was, I mean, I was enormously lucky. A ton of things came to me, 90% of which I would never have thought of myself. You know, and and so that's a great thing about when you put yourself out there, you will attract things to you that you didn't even know existed. So, um, you know, here I was looking at all of these amazing approaches and I went, OK, I, I still do not know what I want to do. Therefore, I am going to be employment slut. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk to everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take every phone call. I'm going to do every meeting, no preconceived notions. You know, there were some approaches that I thought, oh, I'm not sure about this company, but hey, I'm going to go and talk to them anyway. So I embarked on this fascinating exploratory, which was as good for telling me what I didn't want to do as what I did want to do. Because I would come out of a meeting or interview and I'd go, okay, so now I know in 50 million years, no one of that. (laughs) And and so it it was just a very good process for crystallizing my mind in terms of what needed to be in place um, for whatever I want to do next. But, um, you know, to kind of loop back to what you asked me earlier, um, there was this moment of revelation where, um, so I had always done a lot of public speaking when I was at BBH. Mm-hmm. And I left in the summer of 2005. And in the fall of 2005, I had a speaking gig. And I can't remember the name of the event. It was a digital conference. It was in LA. I remember that. And when I spoke while I was at BBH, I obviously had to speak according to the agency's philosophy you know, the agency's agenda, could not say anything that might piss any of our clients off, you know. And there was this moment where I went, oh, my God, I can walk out on that stage and I can say whatever the hell I want. 
I can put my ideas out into the universe without worrying what anybody else thinks. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, that was, in a way, the start of a process whereby, because I could say whatever I wanted, I was able to do um, the other part of this, which is very important, which is to live my values out loud. Mm -hmm. And so I recommend to everybody that the starting point for everything you do in life and in business is look into yourself and ask yourself, what are my values? Everything starts with you and your values. Mm -hmm. You know, ask yourself, you know, what do I believe in? What do I stand for? What am I all about? Because when you know that, and when you therefore live your life and work your work according to your values, that is the secret of true happiness. Because you are always operating in a way that is entirely true to you. And so, you know, this is a very long-winded way of looping back to your original question, which is to say, I was able to begin living my values out loud. Mm. And, and standing outside of our industry, as opposed to working for a corporate player within it, I saw things that I wanted to change and I could be vocal and I could do things about changing them. And so that's really where, you know, championing diversity in all its forms began. I mean, you've always been, at least, you know, since leaving BBH, so outspoken on a number of different issues. Um, t- tell me, where, actually, uh, during that period, where did sort of blow shit up come from in terms mm. of like the sort of the, the, the co-opting of that mm. phrase, at least, but but really sort of using it as a way of giving yourself permission to get out in front of people and actually kind of like blow shit up mm. and, and kind of like, you know, sh- shake up the industry uh, in, in terms of encouraging people to kind of like, you know, think differently. So, sure. So years ago, and, and I mean, I honestly can't remember when this was, but I, I was in a meeting with, um, I think it was with some potential consultancy clients. And, you know, I was talking about what I did. And I, uh, as a kind of throwaway lighthearted joke, I said, I like to blow shit up. I am the Michael Bay of business. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that went down very well in the meeting. And then I thought, actually, I like that as a way of characterizing what I do. And and the reason I like it, Toby, is because, and I explain to people, you know, I, I use that um, to talk about what I do, not as a piece of whimsy or creativity, a bit of fun. Um, I use it because I'm a great believer in be your own filter. And when I characterize what I do in that way, I attract to me the people who want what I do and I repel the ones who don't. Mm -hmm. And I sure as hell want to repel the ones who don't because they're a waste of time, effort and money. And so I actually recommend to people that they do the same thing. They find their own. and, And what I call that, by the way, is I call it your default throwaway descriptor. Now, every one of us has a personal default throwaway descriptor. And your default throwaway descriptor is what happens when, I'll I'll give you an example, you know, two people meet somewhere at a conference, at an event, and they start talking, one of those people knows you and the other one doesn't. Okay, so the first person goes, blah, 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 Toby Daniels, blah, 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 blah. And the other person goes, oh, you know, um, who's Toby? And the first person goes, oh, you know, Toby, he's blah. Mm Your default thrower descriptor is how somebody sums you up very quickly when you're not in the room. And it obviously behoves all of us to make that what we would like it to be. Mm -hmm. And so I recommend to people that they consciously think about how they would sum themselves up in a soundbite. Because it's enormously useful from a business perspective. You want people to go, oh, get me so-and-so because they... 
But also, back to my point of be your own filter, mm -hmm. you want that descriptor to be the thing that attracts to you the people who want what you do and repels the ones who don't. And over the years, you know, my, my descriptor has become, you know, the, the consultancy clients who come to me, my public speaking engagements, um, they want me to blow shit up mm -hmm. on stage. Mm -hmm. You know, they want me to help them change the game in their industry. And so um, it's it's got a tremendously practical usage, which um, is, you know, why I began using it in the first place. So I, I sort of want to fast forward uh, to, to kind of where you are today in that regard, in terms of kind of like the consulting side of your business, which I know that you sort of still maintain, despite being a startup mm. entrepreneur, building a platform company. Just, just because I think it's you know there are aspects to that that are relevant to our our audience, um, and then I'm going to take you all the way back to your TED talk in 2009. You've obviously maintained a, a level of engagement in the business of like advertising and marketing, and so therefore, uh, and presumably um, with with the consulting work you're doing, the public speaking um, that you do in that sort of space, you've also maintained. Um, a point of view, uh, a point of view that I imagine kind of evolves and develops over time. So can you talk about like that point of view? What, where do you see the kind of like the industry today? What are some of the kind of the, the major pieces of insight that you generally are sharing with your audiences? Sure. Well, and by the way, first of all, Toby, I should just say, you know, that I basically um, do paid consulting in public speaking because, sadly, Make Love Not Porn is not funded to the extent <laughs> I can pay myself a whacking great salary. And so, you know, I, I do this because I need to pay the bills, basically. No, I, 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 not only do I appreciate that, I, I, I hear you as a yeah. three-time kind of like entrepreneur running businesses that... The, um, the 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 things that obviously uh, get compromised or sacrificed first are, are, are oftentimes your own personal income. So no, I totally absolutely I totally get yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but but the great thing is that everything I do cross references. You know, so when I talked earlier about living and working one's values, you know, um, every everything I'm living is what is applicable to reinventing any industry in any business you can think of. And in fact, when I do um, do my public speaking, I do say to the audience regularly, I am not one of those speakers who pontificates from the stage. Mm -hmm. Everything I talked to you about today, I'm doing myself. I'm trying, I'm experimenting, I'm failing, I'm trying again. And so I, I am living all the things I talk about and, uh, and that I recommend. And so... You know, the, the, the kinds of things I speak about are um, the need to completely reinvent every single industry. And I especially focus on two aspects that I don't observe enough people talking about, which are, A, the need to reinvent the way in which we do business, um, literally to restructure the way we do business, and B, very importantly, the need to reinvent the business model, to completely redesign the way you make money in any industry. Then I obviously also talk about um, diversity. And, and by the way, and again, I say this publicly all the time, I'm not a fan of the word diversity because it's not about diversity, it's about humanity. When we talk about diversity, all we're talking about is reflecting the world as it really is. Mm -hmm. And to do that in our creative output, in our products, our industries, our teams have to reflect the world as it really is. And so my focus is very much on diversity, not as the right thing to do, but because it makes you money. Mm. It is the answer to reinventing business, again, in every industry. And by the way, when I say diversity, I mean diversity of everything. You know, gender, race, ethnicity, sexuality, disability, age, mm -hmm. you know, fully intersectional across mm. all of those dimensions. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then, you know, I also um, talk a lot about creativity. You know, obviously, it's the lifeblood of our industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but about how you apply that in ways that, that tie into both of the things I've talked about um, just now. Mm. Um, again, in a way that not enough people see. How you get creative about redesigning business structures, about redesigning business models. And especially in our industry, how you get creative about completely redesigning aspirational culture. So, so, so those are some of the broad themes um, that I talk about and consult on. Great. And I'm, I'm sure we will, we'll come back to a number of those different themes. So um, so I'm going to go back now to, to uh, I guess, 2005, 2006. There's a period of time or a couple of years where you're, you're consulting, you're doing public speaking, and then um, you have an opportunity to speak at TED. And I believe that is when you uh, first announced that you were going to be launching Make Love, Not Porn. So talk us through that. Sure. So everything in my life and career has happened by accident. And Make Love Not Porn was a complete and total accident. So it came out of my direct personal experience dating younger men and realizing about 11 or 12 years ago now, through dating younger men, that I was encountering an issue that honestly would never have crossed my mind if I had not encountered it so very intimately and personally. Mm -hmm. Um, I realized I was experiencing what happens when two things converge. And I stress the dual convergence because most people think it's only one thing. I realized I was experiencing what happens when today's total freedom of access to porn online meets our society's equally total reluctance to talk openly and honestly about sex. When both of those things converge, porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. So I found myself encountering a number of sexual behavioral memes in bed. I went, whoa, I know where that's coming from. Right. I thought, gosh, if I'm experiencing this, other people must be as well. I didn't know that because 11, 12 years ago, no one's talking about this. No one's writing about it. And I'm a naturally action-oriented person. And I went, I want to do something about this. Mm-hmm. So 10 years ago, I put up on No Money this tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com, which in its original iteration was just porn world versus real world, Mm -hmm. myth versus reality, Mm -hmm. you know, words and graphics. Mm -hmm. Had the opportunity to launch it at TED 2009, I've been going to TED for many years, Mm. became the only TED speaker to say the words, come on my face on the TED stage, (laughs) six times in succession. And by the way, the only person I've had on the the, uh, podcast, I believe, I may have to go back (laughs) to the archives, it's also said that, but uh, you know. And um, so the talk went viral immediately as a result, and it drove this extraordinary global response to my tiny website that I had never anticipated. And I realized I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. I got thousands of emails from every country in the world, you know, men and women, young and old, male and female, um, you know, um, straight, gay, pouring their hearts out to me. And so I felt a huge personal responsibility to take Make Love Not Porn forwards in a way that would make it much more far-reaching, helpful and effective. But I also saw an opportunity to do what I believe in very strongly, which is that the future of business is doing good and making money simultaneously. Mm-hmm. I saw an opportunity for a big business solution to this huge untapped need. Mm-hmm. And I use the word big advisedly, Toby, because Even then, back in 2009 at concept stage, I knew if I wanted to counter the global impact of porn as default sex ed, I would have to come up with something that had the potential one day to be just as mass, 
just as mainstream and just as all pervasive in our society as porn currently is. Mm-hmm. So thinking big from the get-go. So I turned Make Love Not Porn into makelovenotporn.tv, which is the world's first social sex video sharing platform, entirely user-generated, that celebrates real-world sex as a counterpoint to porn. Our tagline is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. Mm -hmm. We invite anybody from anywhere in the world to socially share videos of your real-world sex on Make Love Not Porn. We are building a whole new category on the internet that's never previously existed, social sex. Mm -hmm. We're what Facebook would be if Facebook allowed you Mm -hmm. to socially, sexually self-express, which it obviously doesn't. And our entire aim with that is simply to socialize sex, make it easier to talk about in order to promote good sexual values and good sexual behavior. We call Make Love Not Porn the social sex revolution. The revolutionary part is not the sex, it's the social. We interrupt this week's episode of Leads to Scale to share an update in regards to our forthcoming conference in London. The 10th annual edition of Social Media Week London, Europe's premier conference for media and marketing professionals, is taking place at the QE2 Conference Centre in Westminster between October 31st and November 1st. This year's event will continue the 2019 global theme stories. With great influence comes great responsibility. A conversation that will explore how social media has become the most influential story platform in the world that has the power to both unite and divide us. Check out our first wave of speakers and secure your pass by visiting socialmediaweek.org forward slash London. And don't forget to use the code LEADS number two SCALE at the checkout to save an additional 10% off your pass. All right, let's get back to the show. I want to spend some time talking about what it's like to build a company that is attached to a number of different stigmas, which I imagine kind of get in the way of your ability to mm. raise money and your oh, ability yes. ultimately to, to scale the company. You know, building a company is, of course, a, a massive undertaking, regardless of what vertical or sector that you might be in. Um, but building something, obviously, that has this like stigma attached to it, must be exponentially, you know, more difficult. So, what what have been some of the challenges? I mean, you've been you know, it's been ten years since you first kind of came out and kind of launched the the concept. So, you know, what have been some of the major challenges that you've you've faced and and even overcome during that time? Oh, my God. Well, you know, really, at the end of the day, there is only one challenge, but it's an all-pervasive one. Uh, And this is in the context of ever since I launched Make Love Not Porn, it has had a universally, incredibly positive global response. You know, at a consumer level, everybody loves what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, Yet, my team and I fight an enormous battle every day to build this business, basically because every piece of business infrastructure any other tech startup just takes for granted, we can't because the small print always says no adult content. And this is true of every single facet of the business in a way that people outside the sphere don't realize. I can't get funded. I can't get banked. It took me four years to find one bank here in America that would allow me to open a business bank account. Biggest operational challenge is payment processing. You know, PayPal won't work with adult content. Stripe can't. Um, And by the way, the founders of Stripe are friends and fans. They went to bat for us with their bank. You know, they wouldn't allow them to work with us. 
Every single tech service that we need to use to operate the platform, be it hosting, encoding, encrypting, the TOS always say no adult content. Mm -hmm. I have to go to the people at the top of the company, explain what we're doing, beg to be allowed to use their platform. Sometimes they'll let me, sometimes they won't. Very labor-intensive process. We had to build our entire video sharing, video streaming platform from scratch as proprietary tech because existing streaming services, off-the-shelf components, will not stream adult content. I'm so jealous of friends who built video startups on top of Vimeo. Mm. Quick, easy, simple, I can't do that. Mm. Even something as simple as finding an email partner, send membership emails out with, you know, MailChimp won't work with adult content, mm. rejected by six or seven until we found SendGrid who would. Mm. Um, we fight that battle every day, and it's a massive business inhibitor. Mm. And so I am constantly looking for... I mean, it's all about being enormously lateral mm. and creative and innovative and in how you overcome those barriers. And I guess, you know, the one good thing is I'm regularly asked, you know, in the face of all these obstacles, what motivates me? And the thing that most motivates me is a dynamic that I characterize as I'm going to fucking well show you. Right. You tell me it can't be done. I'm going to fucking well show you. You put also my path. I'm going to fucking well show you. And so I take all, all that you know, frustration and, you know, all those obstacles, and I turn them into motivation, inspiration. It's, it's amazing. And in a way, I, I've sort of, I keep thinking about like, is there anything outside of the porn industry or outside of adult content in general that this is potentially like analogous to? And, and I can't think of anything, but at the same time, um, I can only imagine how taking this experience and these skills uh, that you have acquired through this process and then applying it to any other industry and being able to just like frictionlessly crush it because things will become mm. so much more straightforward uh, as you enter into sort mm. of different categories. But I, I just think it's fascinating. And, and I know that you, uh, I don't know how much you can talk about it, but I know that you did successfully raise some mm. money. Um, I, I think, you know, mm. after a period of time, mm having some major challenges uh, finding any investor that would 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 want to publicly jump into that type of opportunity so tell us a little bit about the the money that you've raised uh, how that sort of came about and then and then you know talk 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 about the kind of the roadmap like what what are you building now that you have sure. a little bit more kind of resource to to put put behind the the project sure so um, I spent 4 years trying and failing to raise just 2 million dollars to scale make love not porn mm -hmm. My biggest obstacle raising funding is the social dynamic I call fear of what other people will think. Mm -hmm. Because it's never about what the person I'm talking to thinks. Mm -hmm. When you understand what we're doing, why we're doing it, nobody can argue with it. The mm -hmm. business case is clear. It's always their fear of what they think other people will think, which operates around sex, unlike right, any other right, area. Right. So um, I finally raised that $2 million from a very unexpected source, which was my original angel investor. Because when I had the idea for MakeLoveNotPorn.tv back in 2009... I pitched it for two years before I found one investor who got it and put up the seed funding I needed to build a platform. Mm -hmm. He's been amazingly supportive. I mean, he asked to be anonymous. He works in finance. Sadly, it wouldn't benefit him people to know that he's you know, backed us. But um, he's a professional investor. And so over the years, when he's come across people he thinks might be open-minded... In, in the course of his professional work, he will pitch us to them. And that's how he found out what I already knew, which is that we are the final front of investment. And so he and I were having dinner towards the end of 2017. And he was just gobsmacked. He said to me, Cindy, you know, the, the guys I meet will invest in literally anything else. Mm -hmm. Guns, alcohol, tobacco, gambling, mention sex. Whoa. You know. And he was so frustrated. He went, 
so I'm going to put the money up myself, have $2 million. Mm -hmm. And my jaw hit the floor because I would never have gone back to him. I mean, he's been so generous and so supportive. But whoopee, I mean, he put the money up. Um, but um, two, two frustrations relating to that. I mean, the first is, you know, we can't presume what other startups would in our situation, which is great, you spend that money as quickly as possible to, like, really accelerate growth, and then you raise another round, you know. I can't presume that we're going to be able to raise another round. And so I have to be very conservative with my funding to preserve as long a runway as possible to make what we need to happen happen. Um, and secondly, it's been incredibly frustrating to find that even now we have funding, all the same barriers in terms of payment processing and business services still exist. Right. So, um, you know, our progress is, is more slow and steady than, you know... Um, Explosive. Uh, exactly. But, but I'm happy to say that, you know, what that funding has enabled me to do is, first of all, hire a full-time team. Mm. And by the way, to give you some sense of how scalable we are, you know, up until I raised that funding, we had in the course of five years of bootstrapping, with zero funds for any form of paid-for promotional marketing... Our growth was entirely organic, driven by two things, media coverage and search. Nevertheless, we had over 500,000 members globally, over 250 Make Love Not Porn stars, who have contributed over 2,500 videos. We began taking in income on day one. The point being, in a world where the received wisdom is nobody pays for porn, our members are paying for social sex, they see the value. You know, we, we have taken in over a million dollars since, since we launched, mm. and we had done all that on only two full-time employees, one of whom is me, unpaid. Mm -hmm. I mean, scalable or what? Right. So obviously, the first thing I could do was actually hire a full-time team. Hallelujah, bloody Louia, can I just say. There are now six of us, you know, whoopee. Um, and then um, basically put together and implement a development roadmap where we were able to finally last year launch subscriptions. You know, um, so we have three subscription levels that make Love Not Porn. Um, we have just begun a whole series of product releases. Um, just last night, huge excitement, we actually released Search. And I know that sounds pathetically basic, but when you've been bootstrapping, mm. you know, um, for the past few years, we had not been able to build a full Search function. Now we have, you mm -hmm. know, whoopee. Yeah. We've been able to, you know, we've just put out a far better mobile experience. Um, we're going to be in the next few weeks launching um, bookmarking, you know, to, um, you know, to a, 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 a number of other features and functionalities that, that are way overdue in terms of our vision. And so that's enormously exciting. Plus, um, but, but this brings its own challenge. Um, now that we, so, so um, the aim of these releases was to get to what we call minimum delightful product, mm -hmm. i.e. the point at which we're no longer embarrassed about our user experience. Mm -hmm. And so now we can actually start doing paid for promotion. But obviously, as a sex tech startup, you know, um, Facebook won't allow us to advertise. You know, um, no social media platform will. Even a number of traditional media channels won't allow us to. Um, you may or may not have seen, um, you know, our fellow female sex tech founders, Polly Rodriguez of Unbound, Janet and Alex of Dame, both of them had campaigns rejected by the MTA. Massive double standards, you know, Roman have ads for erectile dysfunction all over the place. Mm -hmm. But we can so um we are having to be very creative and innovative about um, what we do. Um, and I'm not going to speak about what we're planning just at the moment, mm -hmm. but essentially 
we, we, we have brought in consultants where their brief is, and we are going to hack the system. And, and as and when we've actually done that and it's worked, I'm, I'm going to be able to talk about that more. But, but again, we're having to be very lateral and creative and innovative this year about how we actively promote Make Love Not Porn. You, you know, and putting aside the challenges of, of just not being able to kind of like work with certain services or integrate with certain technologies, and I can only imagine just like how frustrating that might be. There is definitely something to be said for... Um, you know, bootstrapping, having to be creative with the resources you have available to you um, and and being cautious in, in regards to kind of like where you choose to put your advertising dollars in, in a scenario um, or, or I should say compared to a scenario where um, oftentimes early stage companies just end up squandering so much no. of the VC money that they raise. So Absolutely. there's definitely something to say for it. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, that doesn't really matter if, it, you know, you, you have to build everything from scratch. And that yeah. just like represents yeah. such a, a huge uh, a barrier in regards to kind of how you scale the business. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I just wish you an, a, a, such a huge amount of success with, with this business and in, in scaling this company because I really do you know, believe in your mission. I believe in, oh, in what, you, what you are trying to, to accomplish. And I think it is um, very ins inspirational, yeah. obviously, something that I think I've talked about this with you before. You know, I have young children. I definitely do have major concerns about the impact of, uh, and, uh, of freely and openly accessible pornography and how that's going to shape the way that kind of young people think about the world, how young people think about sex and relationships. And so clearly this is a, a hugely important mission. And, and Toby, I want to take this opportunity to really say how grateful I am to you and Social Media Week for having allowed me several years ago to curate an entire sex tech track. I mean, seriously, you were about the only um, tech conference event that actually welcomed us in, you know, myself and my fellow sex tech founders whom I convened for our sex tech shark tank, you know, for our, you know, um, panel on how all of us struggle with, with these obstacles, which featured Cyan Bannister of Zivity, who, who, you know, had enormous problems, has unfortunately had to, had to, you know, stop operating Zivity because of that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I'm, and, and by the way, that track was stacked out with mm -hmm. audience wise, but I'm so grateful to you for having given us a chance to showcase the amazing f ventures in this space and to talk about the barriers that we face well uh, well thank you for saying that and and we are of course hugely privileged to have you back at social media week again at our new york conference coming up in in april let's just spend a few minutes talking about that because i think there are some some new kind of sort of topics or new areas that you're you're keen to talk about and 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 drive a conversation in so the session that you're going to be part of is called overcoming the social media paradox the good the bad and the ugly hosted by AIRP. How did it come about and, and what are you gonna be talking about during the sure. session? So um, as we mentioned earlier, I've been championing diversity for years and part of that has been combating ageism, which I've been talking about for a long time. And off the back of that, um, last year, um, AIRP reached out to me and said, you basically embody um, our Disrupt Aging initiative. And so they have this wonderful initiative and, um, you know, the amazing Karen Chong, um, who is their um, director of influence and social media engagement, reached out to me and asked me to partner with them. And, and one of the things I love about Disrupt Aging is that, uh, I mean, they're enormously strategically and creatively visionary. They get the fact that ageism happens at every point along the age spectrum. You know, one of the first things I did for them was they asked me to speak at the Teen Vogue Summit. 
because you can be dismissed for being too young as much as you can be dismissed for being too old. And ageism starts actually in our youth in terms of the attitudes that, that get set. Mm. So um, I am partnering with them um, with a specific focus, by the way, on our industry, because they, they gave me the opportunity to talk about what I would love to do, um, given this amazing chance to massively amplify this message. And I said, I would love to challenge and change depictions of age in advertising by challenging and changing ageism in the ad industry. Mm -hmm. Because it's like any industry. When older people, you know, create, approve, produce, direct the ads, problem solved. No more right. stereotypes. Right. So um, th for Social Media Week, I think this panel is going to be fascinating because obviously social media has a huge role to play in shaping cultural attitudes and norms. And one of the things I've been very struck by since I began working with Disrupt Aging and really putting this message out there via social media is the phenomenal response there's been, again, from both young and old. So, um, for example, I mean, one of, one of the things I started, um, in fact, I was doing this even before partnering with Disrupt Aging, but I, I created the hashtag Say Your Age. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because there's this whole cultural thing, especially for women, mm -hmm. where, where you're not meant to say how old you are because it's embarrassing. Yeah. You know? And my attitude <coughs> in terms of countering this is the opposite of the way some people challenge ageism by going, age is just a number. Actually, your age is a very special number because you are the sum total of all of your life experiences and learnings to date. And so your age represents your value and what makes you uniquely you. And so I'm, I'm 58, I'm about to be 59, um, Friday, February the 1st. I tell people that as often as possible. And I'd, I encourage everyone else to say your age. Because when we all do that naturally every day, that's one of those little micro actions where you start breaking down these attitudes with. So I, I'm looking forward to talking on this panel with my fellow panelists about um, you know, obviously there's a big debate about social media at the moment. There are many negatives and things that are, you know, happening. But I'm somebody who absolutely comes down firmly on the side of the positives. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, one of the most powerful things, in my view, social media does is it makes us realise we're not alone. You know, it, it brings us together in communities around things that we feel strongly about that make us all feel better about ourselves. And so I'm looking forward to this discussion as, in a way, it's the antidote to that oh, you know, don't look at everyone else's lives on social media and think they're all having a wonderful time, that there's a chance to open up about things that really matter to us in a way that make people feel so much better about themselves. Yeah, and I, and I, I think that's so important because we have to understand that, the, you know, we, we're not living in a sort of like a static world where things don't kind of move and progress and change. Um, and, and, you know, there is so much criticism and, and unfortunately the media, you know, will, will generally only cover and talk about... Um, the negative aspects and impact and, and implications of social media. Um, and they're important and they should be understood. But there is, as you say, so much that is positive that's also happening as well. But as I say, we're, 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 we're operating in this like fluid environment. We're moving forwards. Things are changing all of the time. And I can really see, I think it's palpable that you that, that this 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 movement that's happening, this movement that's like that putting pressure on everybody to kind of be more real, to live a more authentic life, to to, to share more honestly about the things mm. that um, are, are concerning you or, or just being more honest and mm. transparent about things like how old you are. And I think that's, 
these are the things that we should be spending time talking about, particularly in terms of like how do we how do we help to support those movements mm. and how can we help to to how can we help those movements gain even more momentum because clearly mm. they're, they're they're hugely important. And 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 you know, speaking of which, and this is kind of again a perfect segue. Let's talk about me too. So you know, 2018 was was a, just an extraordinary year uh, on so many different levels. But of course, you know, it's not a year that you can necessarily just like isolate as it as like one particular thing. But I think more happened in 2018 in regards to um you know unpacking and uncovering um some of obviously the most concerning aspects to um how um, women have been mistreated and abused in all kind of facets of society and all aspects of of industry when you came to sort of the end of 2018 and you thought about kind of like you know your your own hopes dreams and, and aspirations for where this movement might go in the future what, what conclusions did you come to and, and and what are some of the things that you're hopeful for in 2019 well I, can, I um, not only can I answer that you know you can also see me talking about that publicly in my keynote at the three percent conference in November great because um, so I've been speaking out publicly about sexual harassment for years and um, since way before me too and I've been speaking out publicly about it because nobody else would mm. And so when the Harvey Weinstein scandal exploded in the fall of 2017, I put out a call to the ad industry because I thought now at last, hopefully the time has come when people will actually name names publicly because nobody had, I mean, I've been hearing from the industry um, stories for years because, mm. because I was out there, um, but no one had ever been willing to, to, to talk about them to the media. So um, I, I put a post on Facebook and the response was extraordinary. This tsunami ended up in my inbox um, from all around the world, by the way. My, my Facebook post shot around the world, it's picked up by the media. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I'd always known it was bad. I'd never known it was that bad. And so I, um, and, and um, th- that happened just before the 2017 3% conference. And I was so horrified by what showed up in my inbox. I actually made the first part of my 2017 keynote about that. And so a year later, at the end of last year, I wanted to report back to the 3% conference. And and what I said to the audience was, you know, a year ago, I stood on this stage and I said to you that that I wanted to help and I wanted to expose the Harvey Weinstein's industry. I have spectacularly failed. Mm -hmm. And I failed because... You know, the men and women who share their stories with me are too terrified to speak up. And it's entirely understandable. They're too terrified to speak up because the men, the powerful men in our industry abusing their power and doing the harassing are the gatekeepers of everything. They're the gatekeepers of jobs, of pay raises, promotions, awards, careers, you know, um, everything. Um, But I said, I just want the audience to know I'm never giving up. Okay, the powerful men in our industry think they've gotten away with it. You haven't. The powerful women in our industry... Who, who have supported and covered up for those men, you haven't gone away with it either. That is my commitment. Mm-hmm. And so I'm continuing to, I mean, I continue to get emails. I'm continuing to try and get people to talk. Um, I'm just never giving up because I can tell you that what has been exposed so far is the tip of the goddamn iceberg. And that's what motivates me to keep going. And a lot of those conversations, like still for you at least, happening kind of behind closed doors as you as you attempt to try and persuade people to kind of come yeah. out publicly. Um, absolutely, and 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 by the way, happening, Toby, in very nuanced ways. So, so I've heard from a ton of men. Okay, and I've heard from a ton of men who have been harassed by powerful gay men in our industry. Okay, mm-hmm. that absolutely happens. Yep. Incidentally, in one and a half years of this, I've never heard from a single man harassed by a woman. Okay? Mm-hmm. 
But, but interestingly, I've heard from a number of men as well in the context of, so sexual harassment is abuse of power. And the flip side of sexual harassment in that context is bullying and harassment of men um, as much as sexual harassment of women. So I've heard from men who have written to me and they are as emotional and as broken as, as the women who write to me about sexual harassment, um, where they, they have been massively bullied and to the extent of being like forced out of jobs. And, um, and, and they have a particular struggle, which is, you know, um, as a man, you are fearful of reporting to HR or going public about the fact that you've been bullied by your executive credit director because that does not accord with our societal contract on masculinity. It is unmanly to like actually, you know, let that impact you, have it impact you in the way that it has, to, to, to say that you can be damaged by, by abuse and bullying. You know, I mean, that, that's a very interesting particular male struggle. Yeah. And so there, yep, there are so many people who cannot bring themselves to speak up. It's, it's, it's very depressing. And I just hope over time we can all create an environment where they will. Do you see uh, a generational shift within our industry having an impact on um, sexual harassment in the workplace. And by that, I mean that it's really hard to change people's attitudes when they are so entrenched, but like younger people coming up and through the ranks in a particular industry who don't have those same attitudes and perhaps um, are, you know, um, um, you know are, 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 are operating in a much more open and transparent environment um, can can ultimately represent the greatest amount of change that could could take us forward in a positive way. Do you know, sadly, Toby, it's not about age and generations, it's about power. <clears throat> and so the unfortunate thing is, the people in power have all the power. Mm. You know, and again, you know, I've heard from, from tons of millennial, young women being harassed, young men watching young women being harassed, and they have no power. The young men are too terrified to speak up, because their jobs are as much at the mercy of that senior guy doing the harassing as the jobs of the women who are the ones being, being harassed. Um, so uh, unfortunately, difference in, in attitudes doesn't make any difference. You know, it is literally about who is in power and who isn't. And as long as sexual harassment is as systemic as it is in every industry, um, and the powerful leaders doing the harassing are the ones talking out about it publicly but doing nothing to change behavior because they know they'll bring themselves down if they do we still have the problem i wish we could have had more time to talk about this but um cindy i just want to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today we of course look forward to your session uh during social media week uh in new york which is happening april 30th to may 2nd cindy thanks so much again absolute pleasure thank you for having me this has been Leads to Scale, brought to you by Social Media Week. For more information on how to get involved with future events, visit socialmediaweek.org. If you have a moment, please rate, review, and subscribe to Leads to Scale wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.